I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. You're listening to What's Next. I'm host Thomas O'Neill White, and today's episode is a two-parter. Through the University at Buffalo's Social Impact Fellows Program, a group of students partnered with Journey's End to create a resource database for immigrants and refugees new to Western New York. But first, I speak with artist Mohammed Zaman, a Bangladeshi immigrant who grew up on Buffalo's east side. His art stems from his Bangla Muslim upbringing, combined with the influence of the street graffiti he saw growing up in the Broadway Fillmore area. His exhibit, Morphing Essence, is currently on display at the Buffalo Arts Studio. Before you moved, or you had the idea to move to Buffalo, um, what was it like, your first impressions of like Buffalo, Niagara Falls, Western New York? Much different than uh, uh, Bangladesh, of course, and uh, also a lot different at that time. I think it was 2004, a lot different than New York City um, that I visited twice before we we actually moved to Buffalo. Um, and uh, he decided to move to East Side, and East Side was a completely different different world at that time. And um, you know. Um, it was it was very interesting. It was very interesting. A lot of a uh, lot of new things to adapt to. Um, houses in Buffalo are a lot different than uh, what we're used to in Bangladesh. Like you know, uh, we don't have winter over there, so open windows all the time. There's balconies, open open doors. There's uh, air flowing through, and and I think to me, uh, growing up, uh, that was very. Um, there was something that was very new and, and odd to kind of just really get adapted to it, where where like everything is very shut closed. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you recall your first Buffalo winter? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I think the first winter was fun because it was it was my first winter, first time seeing snow and actually living in snow, cleaning, uh, you know, uh, snow shoveling and stuff like that, so which was fun. But then uh, very soon it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't very <laughs> fun, <laughs> right, fun right. after one or two years. <laughs> um, so uh, at, at what uh, at what age did you move to? Uh, I was I was eleven years old. I think uh, some somewhere between eleven to twelve. Um, I think it was June of two thousand four, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about like the, you know, adapting culturally from from Bangladesh to the United States and specifically uh, Buffalo, New York? Well. It's uh, it's a it's it's a it's a lot different than um, you know um, here a lot different here than uh, compared to Bangladesh uh, at that time, and and also uh, because because I went through like an uh, Islamic school and Islamic education for me it wasn't like a very um, very it wasn't like a complete three sixty um, turn I think uh, it, it was more more of a, like a slowly gradual. Um, uh, uh, you know, um, acclamation, uh, acclamation, and and, and uh, slowly getting to know people, and and 
and uh, it wasn't like a complete different 180 or 360. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, 180. <laughs> 180. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. 180 turned one off. But uh, yeah, it was it was it was kind of kind of a slow process, and and also um, I feel like um, even now uh, I feel like. Um, Bangladeshi community and, and Muslim community in general in, in America, uh, we have our own kind of culture that we have kind of took some from here, took some from there, and kind of made it our own. And 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 um, that was a little different, but but it was easier to uh, adapt to than than completely uh, different life. And I read on your website that you are well, what. One of your influences, artistic influences, is graffiti. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? So um, <clears throat> after moving here, uh, after moving here, of course, I didn't know how to uh, communicate. I didn't know the language. I didn't know how to uh, speak to someone who was my age or who was 11 or 12 years old. And, and at 11 or 12 years old, kid, he doesn't really, uh, he's not really thinking about Hey, this person doesn't really speak my language, but let me try to still understand because he's he's eleven or yeah, twelve, you know, kids, like so no. kids. So it was very difficult for me to kind of um, make friends at that age, um, and um, I found myself in a place where like I have way too much time with with myself, and I didn't know what to do. I can't play a basketball because bas basketball was completely new sport mm. to me in here, and 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 in in our school, basketball was the thing. Like if you can shoot hoop, and you're you're like the popular <laughs> popular guy, and and, <laughs> and and everybody wants you uh, in their team. Um, I didn't know how to play basketball. I was good at soccer, and I was just um, you know uh, sh shoot around uh, soccer balls um, uh, in the gym, and and people used to get pissed because like I would play you know within at the same time they were playing basketball and, and like and, and uh, that, was, that was very confusing and and uh, I found myself um, very alone um, and uh, um, I I lived in um, Broadway Fillmore area mm -hmm. and we used to, I, I don't know if you remember there used to be, be, be a Walmart uh, on Walden first like the closer by, by Home Depot yes. and that was our primary um, shopping location and, and that's where we would go for groceries and like mm -hmm. house needs and, and when you go to Walmart and you cross through Broadway there's that train track that comes um, I, I don't know if you recall and, and like mm -hmm. that was very fascinating and, and how um, scenery was very different every day. Like one day you'll have this colors, um, um, you know, yellow, pink, purple, and the next day it's completely different. And, and that was very fascinating. And, and uh, religiously, we, weren't, we aren't allowed to draw something that has life or paint something that has life because we believe that that's something that's reserved for God. And, and um, graffiti was like, oh my God, you know, it doesn't really, um, you know, uh, contradicts my religion. It doesn't really um, has any issues. I'm not going to get in trouble with my, from my parents or or from teachers. Mm -hmm. um, I can just do it. It's just letters. There's no there's no faces. There's no nose. There's no uh, body parts. It's just letters. And 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 I started sketching since then. Wow! 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 And and um, so that has become a part of your art. But then there is also a uh, Islamic side yes. to it, a, and a Bangladeshi side. Yes. To it. So, so when I was around um, eighteen, nineteen, with a lot of 
fire, anger, and you know, uh, uh, there's there's a lot of things to say um, that I needed to say, um, especially at that time. Um, I think um, you know, media uh, and TV, whatever you would turn uh, turn them on, you'd see something happening in in Pakistan, something happening in Afghanistan, and somehow um, they were kind of uh, holding us. Uh, Muslims in, in America accountable for uh, for something happening thousands of miles away, which we have no idea about, and, right. and somehow we have to say sorry for those, and we have to we have to like you know take somehow take ownership of that, and, and mm -hmm. I was like you know that is not right, that is not right because you know it's not fair. It's it's someone thousands of miles away who knows what's happening over there, and somehow I have to take ownership of that. If I say sorry, that means I'm part of it. <laughs> so, 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 um, I, I kind of uh, started looking into to see, like, you know, I had a lot of energy, and and see what can I do as an individual uh, person um, that's that's positive and it doesn't have any sort of um, uh, contradiction between people and something that people people loved and it's 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 something that from us um, from our community, uh, calligraphy came to mind. Um, the classic uh, tradition of calligraphy, which we protected for almost uh, over a thousand years, where uh, you know it's just art, it's it's just beautiful. It's uh, it's it's you know it has shapes and 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 and, and it has uh, rules and 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 things that we 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 love, and and somehow I found calligraphy to be like you know acceptable in every society, every religion. Just you know, it is in Arabic. Nobody understands it, but because it's beautiful, people accepted it. So, so I started trying to learn um, uh, how to do classic calligraphy. Um, and and but then being in Buffalo, there's no teacher for me to teach that. Uh, I, I couldn't find anybody to go and 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 um, learn that mm. that. Um, um, uh, Calligraphy, because you know it's a it's an ancient art, and, and because it's so old, um, you know over time there's rules. Uh, rules became available. Hey, certain letters has to be this size. Certain letters has has to be that size. If you, if you make the mark a little bigger, it's incorrect. If you make it a little uh, smaller, it's incorrect. So there's like so there's a, there's I a found lot of structure. There's yeah, and there's a lot of rules. To yeah. It. I found myself in a place where, like, oh my God, this is this is this is difficult, and and also, um, you know, because it's 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 an old art form, mm -hmm. uh, the rules just kind of, you know, over time, um, just just became a part of the work, and and even though your work is might look beautiful, but it's 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 incorrect. Right. <laughs> um, only, only person I found um, was a professor at UB. Um, his name was Dr. Arif Amjad, uh, and uh, he's like he he would do uh, calligraphy in in mosque, local mosque and stuff in his free time. Mm -hmm. And I, I I went to him, and he's like he didn't have the time to because he was he was he was a busy person, and he's like I'll correct your work for you, and but I don't really have the time to like you know give you classes and and, and, and lessons, and and that's something that you have to do on your own so you pretty much self-taught yeah so so I, I i was going back and forth for with him for about a month or two then then i would make something people would say oh this looks beautiful but then like when i said it to him he, he said you know unfortunately it's, it's incorrect because uh because uh, certain lines are not um you know not equal to others and and uh, you know but i don't know how to um, correct your work because it is beautiful but it's not you're not following the rules is that frustrating to hear? That, um, that, at that, that time, your, your work is beautiful, but it's not. It's not. It's not within. You're not 
basically you're not uh, staying within the lines. Yes, it, it it was at that time. So eventually, like I I I, I kind of just stopped emailing him, unfortunately, and which is my bad. Uh, I should I should follow up someday. <laughs> but but uh, then then I started to look into a lot of um, Middle Eastern graffiti artists like Al uh, uh, for example. He's a French Tunisian graffiti artist. Now he's based in Dubai. Uh, Zefa, uh, he's also I, I believe he's a um, he's, he's he's based in France, but I think he's originally from Morocco. And and how they were also taking the same Arabic lettering and kind of making making it their own there's no rules there's no hey this letter that side that side um there's no n none of those things are happening they're painting like huge buildings and uh, say for example um i don't know if you're familiar with his work like he he paints like buildings like six seven floor high wow. you know um the murals like that i'm like oh my god you know this is what i want to do this is mm -hmm. what i want to do um and um, i started trying to break down uh, arabic letters at the beginning and, and I was just only I was only working with um, uh, Arabic lettering, uh, Arabic calligraphy, and kind of mm -hmm. trying to find my own style within within Arabic uh, calligraphy. Uh, then uh, one time, uh, Saeed visited um, New York to do a mural in Coney Island. Um, I I think the the mural project is called um, Coney Island Walls. It's, it's by the theme park. So mm -hmm. so I just lied to my work that I was sick and I just took a drive there. Um, <laughs> just, just took, a, took a drive there and, and met him and he was extremely kind. Uh, that's something that, uh, that, is, that, that was really amazing to me that like, you know, such a busy person and doing, while doing his work, he was able to give me about an hour or two um, wow. worth of conversation. And, 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 you know, uh, allowed me to touch the paint, allowed me to help him paint, paint the wall a little bit. And, and that was a um, big turning point, I think. And um, he suggested, hey, you know, you, you're doing, uh, first of all, you're, you're, you're in America. And, 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 and nobody really understands calligraphy, Arabic calligraphy here, uh, most likely. And also at the same time, you're kind of um, breaking down the letters and the whole Arabic calligraphy form. So, so, so it's not readable at all. So, but it is Arabic, but maybe try something with Bangla letters as well, uh, because you know, that, that's where you're from and that's your uh, father's tongue and you, know, you could possibly find better uh, audience and people might connect with your work better. Then when I came back from there, I'm like, hey, <clears throat> that is true, my parents are from Bangladesh, but I am growing up in, in, in Buffalo, uh, um, you know, trying to speak English as much as I can. And, and Arabic is also part of my life because of my religion and, and because of your daily prayers and, and, and stuff. And, and it becomes part of your life at some capacity. So Arabic, English, and Bangla, they are part of me. So then I started to think like, hey, um, my work is not readable. It's freestyle calligraphy, graffiti mix. So the message idea of uh, writing a visual message is not there anymore. Then I kind of took the letters from Bangla, I took the letters from Arabic, I took the letters from English, and just made it my own. So what you have is it's, it's basically like a very abstract version version of a of a letter form, which is um, you know taken from a lot of graffiti letters, a uh, lot of graffiti writers, and and it's not readable. But what you see is resemblance of English, resemblance of, um, of Arabic and Bangla. 
and 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 uh, at that time, at that time that, that wasn't the intention but what i have noticed over time is that how people from these three backgrounds were like you know they don't really have anything in common together they don't really have any um, need to have any sort of conversation but but if they are standing in front of a piece they're trying to um, figure out what it says but that's not it's not really readable but they're still trying and that forces them to ask each other questions and start a conversation that would not have happened without the artwork. So, so is that, is that, would you say that's your, that's your message in your art? And then, then when I, when I realized that that was, that was happening and I'm like, wow, I, I think I, <laughs> I made something happen. <laughs> I made something happen. And, and, you know, uh, then I started thinking about why I started all this. It was to, you know, give something positive from, from my community. I alone can't change the world, but I can change one person. I can perceive one person and, and, and possibly make him see things differently than what what he, he would see and and um, I think I think the first time um, I, I saw that it was in a BAS and one of my pieces were hanging I think it's the same one that Shirley's uh, hung uh, today as well where like a brown person from let's say Daisy Bigger I, I don't even know know him and and you know he was standing in front of it trying to figure out because he can see some letters that looks like uh, Bangla or Hindi Hindi letters, mm -hmm. and there was a um, Caucasian person who was also trying to figure out what it says. Then, then, then I was standing behind them, like a, in a distance, and just watching them looking at my piece, which made me feel proud. But also at the same time, then all of a sudden they started to have a conversation, and and I'm like, wow, that that is something, that is something I <laughs> I did, and and that's that's from there like this has been the goal. You know, like just connecting people through language and 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 uh, creating something that's beautiful that everybody appreciates and 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 um, being you know they're able to come together because of it. Talk to me about the Bangladeshi community in Buffalo um, from when you moved here. What what year did you move here? You were you were eleven, but uh, what? Uh, what Two thousand. I think, if I'm not mistaken, 2004, 2004 2003, I forgot. <laughs> okay, and then, it's, but, but the Bangladeshi community has been growing. Our family, we like to claim that we were the first Bangladeshi family that moved to, moved to East Side. Ah. And, and, and we like to claim that. And, and um, uh, I think um, before that, um, on East Side, there's, there wasn't anybody uh, living in East Side that, that was from Bangladesh. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Pakistani and Indian, uh, in, Indian um, uh, families that, that moved because of the Islamic school uh, that, that was there. And, and um, that, that was our community. It was very small, but it was beautiful. It was, everybody knew each other um, and uh, everybody was getting together um, probably every few months. And like, you know, you could, if you have any sort of issues, you can just call someone, uh, people will show up and, and, and try to solve your issue, uh, whatever that might be, whether like, hey, uh, my heater's not working, my hot water tank's not working, someone would show up. Right. Um, and, and that was really nice um, a part about living in that era of Eastside. But at this point, uh, there's, there's probably thousands of families that moved. Uh, I mean, uh, just, just since um, COVID, I think it was like a, to me, uh, I, I, I don't know if that's the case, and if that's the reality, but I feel like a lot of people living in New York and, and the big cities, they, they lost their job and, 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 and it was more like a uh, knock in the head where like, hey, what are we doing here? What, what are we doing here? What options do we have? Because 
we don't have any we don't have work we don't have work mm -hmm. but we can't sustain living in new york for example it's so expensive and 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 buffalo was like an op always an option people just moved here i mean uh think about it this way where like um is it a good thing or bad thing long term i don't know but also at the same time like uh people who are working for probably years and years trying to make themselves established in new york new york and and to have something that's that's permanent uh which is close to impossible and but then after working for 10 to 10 to 15 years whatever they were able to save they can come come to buffalo have a house for themselves uh, have something have a place to call home and and really establish themselves with with the with you know with within this community that's already already established and yeah. growing yeah is it easier now or I don't want to say easier, but are you more comfortable as an adult being an established artist, like retaining your cultural identity than when you first moved here? I think um, over time, um, as far as the cultural identity and the identity itself, I think I have created my own, um, and um, which is not. Uh, the life life that I I live it's not very common to any sides um, where um, you know I think um, I, I have different thoughts about community and 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 people maybe compared to someone else um, not necessarily one is good or better than others it's just like different like um, um, as far as identity I think I have created something on my own and, 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 and I feel like um, I'm trying to hold on to that. <laughs> I, think, I think you speak for a lot of us when you say yeah. that. Um, anything more about your artwork? Um, where do you, you want to take this? I mean, you've, you've, you've had your work throughout the world, haven't you? You've, you've shown your work all over yes. the world. Where do you want to, what's the next step for Mohammed Zaman? What's the next step? Um, honestly, I don't know. There's no, there's, there's, of course, there's bigger goals and there's uh, smaller goals and there's everyday goals where, like, for today, just, you know, get through this interview successfully and get through my day. That's my, that's my goal for today. But uh, as far as um, bigger goals as to, like, where, where, where do I want to take, take that work? I mean, I think, um, honestly, um, I hope that someday, um, another 11-year-old kid from Bangladesh uh, or from even from here um, can see the work and say, hey, um, someone like me has done something. Someone like me has done something who looks same as me um, and, and who faced the same challenges as me. Um, so can I, I can also do something. Um, I think that's the, that's the biggest goal for me. Um, and, 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 you know, um, it's a, it's, our world is, is a very, um, maybe edit that part, but, <laughs> but our world is a very, it could, it could, it could, uh, the business side of, of um, DART, it can get, um, little, a little complicated, but, you know, every, every job, every business, every, everything has their own challenges and, and, you know, um, you face them every day, you, 
get through them, you solve them, and 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 you try your best to crawl out of it alive, and 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 you know or, or learn something from it. Um, good days, bad days, and and they're just part of life. And 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 as far as bigger goals, I think the biggest would be if I can uh, inspire another. Um, 11 years, 11 year old version of me, mm-hmm. um, to to um, pursue um, something that brings them joy and happiness, and also gives them a bigger purpose um, than than whatever their parents are instilling in them. And I think I think that that I think I would, that would I would call myself um, happy and successful. We'll be back with more. What's next after this? You're listening to What's Next our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Thomas O'Neill White here. You're listening to What's Next. I'm on the campus of University of Buffalo. I'm with Carrie Gardner, Aisha Dada, and Ariana Wink, who have created something pretty darn awesome. Mm-hmm. Carrie, can you can you can you start us off? What did you create? Well, uh, we created the Social Impact Fellows program. It's a program that is interdisciplinary. And uh, it involves students from three schools across UB, the School of Management, the College of Arts and Sciences, and the School of Social Work. And what happens is we interact with 10 local nonprofit organizations who present us with challenges. And then we build interdisciplinary teams that work during an eight-week summer internship to uh, come up with recommendations to address the challenges faced by their partner organization. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and one of these challenges is obviously um, immigration, refugees. Talk a little bit more about that. Yes, so each year what happens is when the partner organizations are submitting their proposals, for the projects, certain themes emerge. And this year, probably no surprise to anyone, the theme of refugee services, access to uh, basic services to address needs did emerge. We actually had four different teams working with four organizations within Western New York that uh, have different types of services that are focused on refugee and immigrant populations. What established the need to do this research um, uh, for this sort of uh, data collection? So when we talked to our partner organization, our contact, Jessica Hernandez, um, we found that within Buffalo, it was really hard for them to find consistent partners and consistent places to refer the refugees out to due to kind of a want to have a more cohesive system internally. And so what we created and we worked on is a way that they could have all of the information they needed on these different resources so that they would be able to place refugees 
in spaces and in resources that would allow them their best chance to have a match, whether it be food, whether it be medical, whether it be things like childcare or even um, emergency services. Because how long typically is it? does it take for a case manager to find these things um, for their clients? Often we searched and we uh, pulled different case managers, even testing them on this process, and it took them anywhere 10 minutes and above to find one resource for one client. And the case managers have how many clients per? Yeah, on an average, a case manager would have around eight clients, but it could be somewhere from four to 12. So yeah, and also like when we went in, um, when we talked to the team of attorneys and they told us that um, they have a lot of resources in the community, uh, child care, food services, but they were losing a lot of institutional knowledge mm -hmm. because when the case managers leave, the, the knowledge also goes away because there is no way to preserve that information that they are, you know, like spending so time, so much time on finding around childcare, healthcare resources. So they wanted us to build a system to preserve that institutional knowledge so that even when case managers leave, the ones who are joining in, they can use that information to quickly find services for their clients. Yeah. And that's why we did a lot of interviews mm -hmm. because we mm -hmm. wanted them to, the information that we got from the organization to shape our research, to inform our research on what we want to find. So it was talking with case managers and then from that data, putting it, how, talk, talk, uh, tell me, uh, take me through the, through the process, please. So the first day, we grabbed a whiteboard that would be our trusty friend for the rest of our entire time there. Um, we set it out and we started mind mapping. So we took a concept, say it was food, and then we said, okay, what related to food are things that people need to know to be able to access this resource, to know that this resource works for them, and to be able to make sure that access physically is possible, but also language barriers or other, other issues that may arise, whether it be documentation or zip code needs, things that people don't at first think of. So we had little offshoots like location, transportation, um, food type, whether it be, is it culturally appropriate? Does it serve people with allergies? Is there baby food? Things that at first, if you don't do the, the digging to understand the population you're working for, you might miss as an important need. And that's just one example of one type of resource. We went through and did this for each resource um, of the 11 different types that we ended up categorizing. Oh, what are zip code needs? Never so, heard that term. Okay, so when it comes to food specifically, um, food pantries often are contained within a specific zip code. So you have to be living in a specific zip code to access that. And in order to prove that, there are many steps that you have to go through. Some of them will make you bring your utility bill. Some of them will make you prove it through a mail address to you. And then on top of that, um, people who are in a specific zip code 
but that food pantry might not have the right food for them are a little bit stuck unless there are some that are near them or relatively able to access through transportation that apply for all zip codes. Also, the food pantries are not open on all the days. Mm -hmm. Like there are many food pantries that would open just twice a week. So when the refugees are coming in, especially for the new case managers to find out which food pantries open today, it's a tedious task to go mm -hmm. through all the information again. So, um, so we created a system where they could quickly find, could quickly filter and find that this food pantry is open and they can go in at this time. And they could also call them because we have all the numbers mm -hmm. in the um, spreadsheet that we have created. So they can call and check if that food pantry is open and they can just go in. And even like during the time <laughs> we were there, um, mm -hmm. this, uh, this, this thing happened where one of the case managers came to us and he was like, um, my group is my new group of refugees. They are coming in tomorrow and they need a food pantry tomorrow. So we were like, okay, we have already created the system, so let us find it for you. So it just took us like a few seconds to yeah. filter that information and find a food pantry for them. We called them to check if they were open, and they were open. And um, he took uh, his refugee group to there, and they found all the stuff that they wanted. They were all packed, and they already had a return appointment booked for them. So It's remarkable. That is really remarkable. What's the what's the biggest takeaway you get from from this process? I think for me, it's reminding me that you have to start with the people that you're serving. It's not about my idea. It's not about how I think these people could be best served. It's about how genuinely could they be best served from their own voices. So that's why we made sure that we did interviews with case managers, with people from different departments at Journey's End who have client-facing aspects to their job. Because in order to create a system that works, you have to think of who the end user is, and you have to put them at the center. Yeah, also like it's different to serve a local than to serve a refugee. Mm -hmm. For example, like when refugees come in, they have a refugee resettlement period of 90 days within which some of the tasks have to be done, especially with related to healthcare. So then how do you find organizations that you can rely on? The partner organizations who could do those healthcare checkups and all of that within that 90-day period because mm -hmm. the money that the organizations, refugee organizations get for their clients, that has to be spent within that period. So how do you find organizations that are not burdened and that, that they can take in your clients within that 90-day mm -hmm. period? So. Now, just for our listeners, is the region you are serving, is, is all of Western New York? Okay, like... Niagara, Erie, stretching to Rochester? Not Well, not stretching to Rochester. One of the reasons is we want the students to be there in person, and we need to pay attention to our own students' needs in terms of their own access to transportation. <laughs> um, but we want it to, to start, we started the program out serving Western New York, so any of the counties that fall under the definition of Western New York, that's who we strive to serve. Um, it, the, the theme, the refugee sort of theme that emerged this year 
dictated the concentration of location for all of these experiences. And we really want the students to be on site. Mm -hmm. we, we want them to understand from kind of boots on the ground what these uh, organizations are trying to do. And we also want them to gain that exposure to the populations that they serve. What was it like with, with having the boots on the ground? I think it was incredible to be able to walk into an organization the first day having absolutely not no clue, but very <laughs> little clue of how it all works because it's we get a project brief where we can understand, okay, this is the task that we're assigned, but then we have to do all the learning of how does this organization work? How are the processes in place for the case managers? for their supervisors, for refugees in general. For me, it was a great learning experience of understanding what is a refugee, what is an asylee, what is a human parolee, and that they're all legally distinct entities. Um, learning more about how, just how much Buffalo is a connected place, learning about how Journey's End specifically looked towards, uh, is part of a refugee partnership that allows for these different organizations that are working on the same problem to be able to address the community in a more holistic way where they're not vying for resources but they're collaborating for them as 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 a uh, as someone who has talked with numerous people about numerous things uh, throughout my career it's often said about western new york and buffalo specifically that we are too siloed we, we might be working on similar things, but there is no collaborative effort. But that, that's what you're seeing here mm -hmm. um, through, through Journey's End. Entirely, entirely. And it was wonderful to be a part of that. And then to also see how we could break down some of the internal silos with the tool that we were creating. So this tool, this database, you can just view it online or, or, you know, if I needed food mm -hmm. and I just click on a, on an area or a town or so how, how, does that work? how it will work is we have a resource map. So you would be able to look based on your location at where the markers lay. Um, you can filter it down for your specific need. So I'm going to go back to food pantries because it's our biggest example with 83 different food pantries. Wow. So you would look at the lovely little green dots on the screen um, and pick one. And from that, you'd be able to see all of the different categories that we've assigned to it. So you'd be able to see what um, resources, what ID you would need to, to access it. You'd be able to see what kind of food is available, how often you can access the space. Is it on a bus route? Is it open on this specific day? And you'd be able to see that all right on your screen as you click on that marker. And to be just clear that um, this information is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. So we have also created a system to update that information. So we have created Google Forms that the case managers can use to um, submit any changes in the information or add new information on resources that will then be checked by two key persons in the organization and then the information will be updated um, on our system. 
So that information is constantly changing and it's updated so you will not have to worry about the information being old, mm -hmm. you know, like, which is a problem with a lot of um, websites and systems that are existing right now. They have a lot of information, but that information is not current. Mm -hmm. Right, and is that because like food pantries and other things like close down or, or move to a different yes. location? Yes, and realistically, you're, af you're having businesses that are often nonprofits who are doing the most in all of their mission that going to each individual different website that lists them as a resource is really time consuming for them and having it be our case managers being able to be the ones updating the people who are regularly interfacing and using these resources really helps the process because they know what's going on because they see it day in and day out. <clears throat> we talked a lot about, uh, you know, resources such as food, but what, you know, going down, going down yeah. the list, yeah. what, what, what are other resources that these folks are seeking? So our, our colleague Ian, he worked heavily on getting dental up and running um, as one of them, vision another, um, care coordination, we did emergency services, we did medical devices. Medical devices. Yeah, and child care services. And child care, yeah. And I think we briefly dove into mental health services, but that was nearing the end of our time. And how long, you just worked on this throughout the summer? Yeah. For eight weeks. Eight weeks, eight weeks. Heavy lift? <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I, it's I think it's amazing what our students are able to accomplish in a concentrated time frame. And I'm just so impressed and amazed with what they do. It's such a great service to the community. And every year, I'm just astounded at how these students jump right in. We were just talking about this prior to the interview. They just jump in. They just jump in and they go after it. And they come up with these wonderful ideas um, that the organizations, for the most part, implement sometimes during that eight weeks, but definitely shortly after the eight weeks, the organizations will implement these recommendations. And it's just amazing to see that happen. And I was really happy um, when Jessica sent us a link to their website, mm -hmm. uh, because our system is right now on the website. So anybody can um, see the system. They can, if you don't have to be a case manager or, um, you know, an employee of a refugee organization, if you are a client and you know how to access a website and read, you mm -hmm. can go in and you can uh, open the system, open the spreadsheet, and you can filter the information for yourself or your family members or someone you know, and you can help them too. Mm -hmm. so. And that's simply under their resource tab and yes. then under refugee resources. Yeah. Any drawbacks or, or problems you ran into um, while, while doing this research and creating the database? I think the drawback for us was we wanted to do more. We really were looking into addressing housing, but we realized with the time that we had, we wouldn't be able to do that. And I think for us, it was trying to make sure that we always had our details correct and so we would always be kind of in this state of okay how can we do this best which is both a huge positive right but also it, it's time consuming mm -hmm. right and we all have different ideas on how those details might be fleshed out and I think that's the beauty of working in a team is you get 
all of these different perspectives to be able to mesh them together. And when you have three passionate individuals working on a project, you're, you're going to get conflicting ideas. And I think that's the beauty of it is all of those different ideas aren't really in conflict. It's about figuring out what piece of each of them needs to come to play in the final solution. How about you, Aisha? Yeah. One drawback that I felt was that I think that's that's the case for all, you know, NGOs and all refugee-based <laughs> mm-hmm. organizations is that they don't have enough funds to implement ideas. Yep. So what we wanted to do uh, was we wanted to create pamphlets which mm-hmm. would have information, key information on resources uh, for the refugees and the asylum seekers so that when they come in, they don't always need the case managers for very easy information. They can just pick up the pamphlet and they can read the information and go and access the food pantry or a healthcare provider. But for that, we needed the pamphlets to be in 10 different language languages. So the, the refugees spoke 10 different languages. Mm-hmm. And we could have created the pamphlets for food, healthcare, and other resources. But for that, we needed funding to, be, to create that in 10 different languages and all those resources. So it would have been wonderful mm-hmm. if we had time for that. We also, were, um, we also had very little time to do that, but also if we could have created that, funding could have been an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that was a drawback. Yeah, the pricing was yeah. per page. Yeah, per page, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, will this program, can it come back around and tackle housing? Do you think? Is that is that on the table, Carrie? Everything's on the table for the Social Impact Fellows Program. We run it every summer. And we do an open RFP, so any organizations can apply and submit to us what they'd like to work on, and we're happy to review it. I mean, we're limited. We can work with 10 organizations each summer. One of the, the approaches that we had used in the past was to try not to repeat an organization from one summer to the next. But we are working on some changes to the program currently, and it dawns on us that some of these projects have a part two. (laughs) And so that is something we're taking into consideration. Um, Some of them are just-in-time projects that the organizations are looking for quick solutions, and some of them are more longitudinal. And uh, also what we're considering right now is ways that we can create research around the uh, uh, assessing the impact of the implementation of these systems and ideas on the community as well as the population What's served. going on currently? Th- this is all in formation right now for future iterations of the fellowship. We are ramping up right now to launch our recruitment phase for 2024. And we're excited about it, of course. <laughs> well, um, Aisha and Ariana, what's next for, you, for both of you? So currently, I am I'm a dual degree student. I'm an MBA MSW. Um, I'm actually working at Goodwill for my field placement, and I'm getting to work closely with their team on workforce development. And so that's an area I find myself really excited about, and I'm enjoying my work so far, and really excited to see what comes next. Asia? Yeah, I'm in my PhD program, third year of my PhD program in sociology, so I am about to clear two qualifying exams, 
And then I will start working on my PhD proposal, which is around refugees, but in India. So I'll be uh, looking at their livelihood challenges, uh, because in India, they are not really recognized at this time, this particular refugee group mm -hmm. of Rohingyas. So what kind of livelihood challenges are they facing in their day-to-day life, like in accessing employment and other essential services? So I'll be writing up my proposal around that. And these are refugees in India? Yes. Or? Okay. It, these refugees are from Myanmar. It's a Rohingya refugee group, and they have moved to Bangladesh and from Bangladesh to India. But in India, they are currently not recognized. So what kind of challenges are they facing in their day-to-day -day search for livelihood, employment, and other essential services? So you could apply what you've done here? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so actually, like what, what I really found um, interesting about this fellowship and valuable is that I worked before doing my PhD. I worked for four years before I joined the PhD mm -hmm. program in India. Um, but, but when I was working, we used to work for a long period on one project, right? But when I did this fellowship, it was so intriguing that you can go into an organization and help them to do something in just eight weeks. You know, like, of course, you're not expert in that area, mm -hmm. but you can mm -hmm. use your skill set to shape what they're doing in very valuable ways, which even the organizations recognize. So even after my PhD program, I intend to join research organizations or policy-based organizations to shape their work in whatever way I can uh, with my skills that I learned in the PhD program and through these different experiences. And one of them, of course, is the Social Impact Fellowship Program. And just from talking with the three of you and you know having interviews with people from Journey's End, the immigration and refugee issue is, is an issue of, uh, time is of the essence. Is what, is what I'm trying to get across. So, and it's a global issue. It becoming is a global more, issue. Becoming more and more important because of wars and climate change everywhere. So we are yet to see more refugees. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anything we haven't gone over that you feel is important to get out there while we're sitting here? I have a couple of things I'd like to mention, but I just have to reiterate. I feel like proud mama right now because <laughs> I... You look it. <laughs> I can't stop smiling. <laughs> I am so proud of our students. It really is overwhelming. And this is just one team. They're a fabulous team, of course. Right, there's what, There are ten, ten teams. Ten teams. Ten teams each summer that just do amazing work. And one of the points that I appreciate so much is the immediate short-term impact that our students can have on these organizations. Now, of course, it's up to the organizations to figure out, will they actually implement? Mm -hmm. And what does that look like? And how do they plan to take their next steps? Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I, I really do want to point out is that it's so important for us, especially now in this climate, to create opportunities for students and frankly faculty and staff as well <laughs> to learn how to respect each other for you know your, your your core beliefs where your suggestions and ideas are coming from mm -hmm. where your your you know your your history your personal history your academic plan 
everything that makes you who you are contributes to that need to come together and to be able to create these solutions means giving each other grace. It means mm -hmm. forgiving yourself for maybe having reactions that you didn't anticipate. Right. It means honing your listening skills and really being able to listen to the organizations because they're the ones that are doing this fabulous work for our yeah. community. So it, it's it, the, the, the central piece that I love about this program is it's an opportunity to learn how to respect each other and also to raise awareness of real issues that can't be excused based on somebody's politics or, or someone's belief system. These are real issues. They're real issues in our community. And as, as Aisha said, these are issues that are going to grow if we're talking about refugee asylum seekers, immigrants, you know, all of these things. If this is a theme that is emergent, it is a theme that is dire and important for all of us to pay attention to. So the, the, the interdisciplinary nature of the program is, is one piece. The, the collaboration and respect that comes out of it is another, but also raising awareness of real issues that need to be addressed in any way that we can help our community. It's really um, up to us and we're obliged to do it. And just one thing that I want to say about the organizations that fellows work with, especially from my perspective of working with uh, Journeys End, is that these organizations value the fellows so mm -hmm. much. Yes. Um, yeah. They know that we are not experts in that area, but still they give us that space to learn and grow and contribute to that organization in very valuable ways. And I do not think, and I think Ariana would agree with me, if we didn't have that space to use our skills to, you know, like just, you know, learn and grow, it wouldn't have been so valuable as an experience for us. Agreed, 100%. I think that being able to jump in, as Carrie says, is one of my favorite things about this whole experience. And honestly, one of the reasons I even chose to be at UB because I saw the social impact program and it was one of the things that drove me to want to be a part of this community because I think that being boots on the ground, having the experience, diving in is how you learn, right? Mm -hmm. Being able to be immersed in an experience where you might feel like your head is just above the water, but you're not drowning. You're learning how to swim, right? Yes. And that's the great that's the greatness of it, is being able to enjoy the experience and learn and hone your skills in real time and see, oh, okay, maybe I need to step back and, and that wasn't quite the right thing, but also getting the affirmation from your teammates of, hey, we can do this though. We can move in this direction. We can adjust and adapt and pivot. And maybe you have that great idea someday. And I think seeing how it all kind of moves and flows and shapes your experience, but also your overall solution is a beautiful thing to look back on it and realize how far you've come as a person just in eight weeks. Just one more time for our listeners, where can we find this database? It's for, on for Journeys. For City of Good Neighbors? Yeah. <laughs> it's on Journeys End's website right now under their um, tab resources. Um, you can see our system, uh, the filterable system, and also we have the maps there. So if you want to look at the visual maps, you can also do that. All right. I want to thank Carrie Gardner, Aisha Tata, 
Ariana Wing. Thank you for having me here on the uh, UB campus. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ariana, Aisha, and Carrie all wanted to make sure our listeners know the important contributions of student Ian Week, who was unable to join them for the interview. Ian was key in communicating with resource providers, mapping resources, and building the filterable system from scratch. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.